Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. This week, Travis and I are excited to welcome our friend and coalition partner, Matthew Sorens, to the roundtable to talk about what in the world happened with President Biden's decision on the refugee admissions ceiling. And as advocates for both refugees and immigration, uh, Travis and I are also glad to talk with Matt about what we as a coalition of advocates are doing not only on refugee policy, uh, but also uh, with the ongoing crisis at the southern border, dealing with border security, the asylum process, uh, and refugee admissions. We're talking about a lot in this episode, but Matt is an expert in all of it, and so we're excited to have him here. Matthew Soren serves as the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief and as the National Coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table, a coalition of evangelical organizations of which both his organization, World Relief, and ours, the ERLC, are founding members. We talk more about the EIT in this episode. Uh, Matt previously served as a Department of Justice accredited immigration legal counselor for World Relief's local office in suburban Chicago. He is the co-author of a couple different books, First Seeking Refuge, On the Shores of the Global Refugee Crisis from Moody Publishers in 2016, and more recently, Welcoming the Stranger, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate. That one was published by InterVarsity Press in 2018. Matthew earned his bachelor's degree from Wheaton College, where he also served as an adjunct faculty member for the Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership Graduate Program. He earned a master's degree from DePaul University's School of Public Service. Originally from Wisconsin, he now lives in Illinois with his wife, Diana, and their four children. And joining Travis and me on the podcast this week is our friend Matt Sorens from World Relief. Matt. Welcome to Capital Conversations. Thanks for being here. Great to be with you guys. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Matt, Travis and I were eager to welcome you onto the show because at the time that we scheduled this conversation to be about refugee admissions and the refugee cap, we were still advocating for the Biden administration to raise the ceiling. Um, we all expected uh, President Biden, when he was candidate Biden, uh, promised in his campaign that he was going to raise the refugee admissions cap from the historically uh, really unprecedented low ceiling of 15,000, which is where President Trump's administration left it on the way out, that he was going to raise that immediately to a much higher number. Unfortunately, he didn't originally. Um, but I'm starting off with this uh, a, a bit different intro because right before we got to our podcasting uh, room here online, uh, the White House sent out a press release that they are, in fact, raising the ceiling. So I'm I'm now glad to have you on to talk about kind of how that happened and how the advocacy community like ERLC and World Relief and many of our other friends uh, played a part in pushing back when the administration um, broke that campaign promise out of the gate. Um, but before we talk about those specifics... Uh, we work together through a thing called the Evangelical Immigration Table. So I think it could be helpful uh, for our listeners if you could tell us a bit more about EIT, the Evangelical Immigration Table. 
Yeah, so the Evangelical Immigration Table got started back in 2012, at least formally, um, by launching a statement of principles. At the time, and even you know, months and maybe a year or so before that, a number of national evangelical Christian groups, I think, were conscious that this issue of immigration was complicated. Uh, the policy dynamics were complicated, but also it's an issue that's having a, a significant impact on evangelical churches throughout the United States, as we see a lot of growth in immigrant communities and in immigrant congregations. So um, we got together and said, we want to make sure that the conversations that happen both on Capitol Hill and in the White House, but also in our local churches about immigration are rooted first and foremost in what the Bible says. And so we brought together some leaders and uh, the leadership of the RLC at the time was there, as well as the National Association of Evangelicals and um, World Relief, where I work, and a few other organizations that, and basically said, what are some core principles that we think are consistent with the Bible that ought to be guiding us as we move forward on this issue? And that statement of principles has been our, our guide for uh, almost a decade now as we've worked together to say, how can we both help local churches think about this issue, but then also help our elected officials apply biblical principles as they look at immigration policy? Let me just jump in real, real quick here, Jeff, to say that, I mean, our, our partnership with EIT is, is one of the most successful uh, coalitions, I think that we're a part of. It's it's a uh, it's a pretty diverse group, but um, but as Matt said, we 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 have been able to rally around a very clear set of principles that have guided our work. And because of the because of that clear set of principles, we we haven't had to get too far down in the into the details, and we've been able to provide um, uh, a sort of moral framing to this to this issue that uh, has helped uh, both pastors think about this stuff, but as well as uh, as legislators uh, and policymakers here in Washington. That's absolutely right. And I, I'm going to link to a an online resource that uh, that the EIT put together, and we actually republished uh, republished it as a series at erlc.com uh, to help folks think biblically about immigration about immigrants uh, as people made in the image of God and uh, the reforms that we advocate for based on those principles. So I'll put that in the in the show notes. Uh, so Matt, I want to talk specifically about refugee admissions. Uh, this conversation with you comes after uh, really kind of in a series, and we didn't necessarily intend for it to be this, uh, this kind of a series uh, this year on the show, but it really has become that with our conversations um, about border security and the asylum process with Laura Collins of uh, of the Bush Institute. Uh, and then we talked with Jonathan Hayes, a former director of ORR, uh, the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Now we're talking to you uh, as somebody who works for a refugee resettlement agency, which I'd love for you to share more about that work that World Relief does. Uh, but Again, because this is kind of a breaking news moment uh, when we're talking here, I've got I've got the press release from the White House uh, pulled up, and and uh, first sentence today. This is obviously uh, President Biden. Today, I'm revising the United States annual refugee admissions cap to sixty two thousand five hundred for this fiscal year. Talk to us about that number. Why that number matters. Why it's why that number is, is what many refugee advocates were calling for. Matt, maybe even before we do that, talk a little bit about what the ceiling is. Like, what does it, 
what, why, why does, why, why does this number matter at all? Why is the president involved with it? I mean, what, what are, what are we talking about when we talk about the ceiling? Yeah, it's a great question. So the refugee ceiling goes back to the Refugee Act of 1980. So this is sort of the it's the law in the United States that governs how refugee admissions work. Uh, one thing that the Refugee Act does is it actually defines who a refugee is for U.S. legal purposes, and it, it borrows on some international conventions to which the U.S. was already a party. But it defines a refugee as someone who is is outside of their country of origin, who left because of a credible fear of persecution. That is specifically on account of their race, religion, political opinion, national origin, or social group. So that is the definition of a refugee. And in terms of refugee resettlement, uh, that those are individuals who the United States government has identified overseas, uh, often based on referrals from the United Nations, uh, verifies that they indeed meet that legal definition, also, of course, verifies that they're in no way a public safety threat or a public health threat. And then a small percentage of the world's refugees, I mean, in the 15 years I've been at World Relief, it's never been more than about one half of 1%, but in the recent years, it's been closer to one-tenth of 1%, gets selected for resettlement to the United States after going through that vetting process overseas. So the ceiling under the Refugee Act of 1980 is the maximum number of refugees that can come in in a given fiscal year. And in terms of the specific number, again, we're now talking about 62,500 for the rest of fiscal year 2021. It was set at 15,000 by President Trump uh, in the last fall. In terms of historical context, um, it was set at over 231,000 in 1980 when the refugee ceiling was first signed. So um, these numbers are, not, you know, it tells you just how low 15,000 is. The historic average is around 95,000. Um, and the Typically, in the last decade or so, it's been in that range of 70,000 to at the most 110,000 by President Obama his last year in office. Uh, and then under President Trump, it declined every year. And it's also worth noting that this is a ceiling, which is to say some years the government gets to the ceiling or within a few refugees of whatever that ceiling was. Other years, they don't. Uh, probably the clearest example of that would be fiscal year 2002, where President George W. Bush just literally weeks after 9-11, continued to set the ceiling at a stable level. If I'm not mistaken, it was about uh, 70,000, uh, where it roughly it had been. And there was pretty clear at that point that with a lot of new security vetting systems in place, um, not that 9-11 had anything to do specifically with refugees, but anyone coming to the United States was you know, subjected to some new screening and vetting after that. It was pretty clear that by creating a more intensive vetting process, it wasn't going to be possible to you know, have a process that took a year or longer to complete if they hadn't started that process, you know, the previous year. And indeed, they didn't get to that ceiling. But I think it was very intentional from President Bush to convey both to, to really to the world that the United States still stood with refugees. And as soon as we safely could, we would be back to bringing in as many as we safely could. And I think in some ways, that's what we're seeing now with this reversal from President Biden back to 62,500. Very frankly, and the president acknowledges this in the press release, we're unlikely to get to that number before September 30th. But we definitely can get above 15,000 or ought to be able to. And by setting it at a, that has, you know, along the lines of a historic norm, it's conveying to our allies that they should keep welcoming refugees and that we're doing as a nation all we can to continue to rebuild the ref refugee resettlement program. And, and frankly, as a resettlement agency, it's also a symbol to us that we should go ahead and start rebuilding. Uh, because we were getting some very mixed signals between what was coming from the campaign and what was signed by President Biden a couple weeks ago.
And Matt, the, I mean, the reason why we're, we're unlikely to reach a 62.5 level this year is, is because of COVID. It's not only because of COVID. I mean, COVID, it complicates things, but it's actually, it goes to that reality that refugees are incredibly thoroughly vetted, which is probably worth repeating a few times because that's not always the message that people have heard. Um, it's a vetting process that takes usually at least a year to complete, sometimes a couple years to right. complete. So frankly, the Trump administration didn't send the staff overseas to start that vetting process a year ago for enough people such that they would be able to come in right now. However, as I said, they did for more than 15,000. As from what we understand, USCIS, which is part of Homeland Security, has about 35,000 cases that have been approved. So within a reasonable amount of time could come in and they're continuing to, to add to that pipeline of, of vetting. So Matt, I, I want to I, I go back to the, the point that you just made about this being a, a highly vetted category of immigrants. And I, you know, I remember I was having a conversation with, with, uh, with a, a pastor several years ago and uh, you know, he, he was asking me, he's like, well, who, well, what, what would you consider to be a refugee? And my answer was, well, it, it, it's sort of irrelevant what I think a refugee is. I mean, it's, it, it is a matter of law. Um, talk to us a little bit about the process of how a determination that a, that a person, uh, who, you know, that a person is experiencing a well-founded fear of persecution. How, how does that legal determination get made? Yeah. So every one of those determinations is made on a case by case basis based on interviews overseas. Um, often there's sort of a presumption, like if you've been living in a refugee camp for 10 years, there's sort of the pre preliminary presumption that you're probably a refugee, that you probably aren't just here on a vacation, uh, but you were fleeing a hard circumstance. But still, every individual is individually verified by the U.S. government. Um, looking at that question of, of fear, and I mean, there's there's case law on what credible fear is because these same definitions then come into asylum law for people who arrive to the United States uh, who are you know on their own accord. Uh, but basically, it's looking at because of a factor that either is immutable, that is to say something you cannot change or something that you should not be forced to change, like your faith, you have a reasonable fear that you could be harmed. And um, so, again, a very typical case, and I think, you know, this is something we've highlighted with the evangelical immigration table. A lot of refugees who get resettled to the United States are people who were persecuted for their religious beliefs. Uh, for a variety of minority religious uh, traditions, but the most common is actually Christianity. Um, you know, in fact, if you look at the top country of origin for refugee resettlement over the last decade, uh, it's not Syria or Iraq or some of the other countries we hear most about in the news. It's Burma, which we have heard about in the news actually in the last few months, um, uh, because unfortunately the Burmese government is increasingly authoritarian. But they've been authoritarian and, and really terrible to religious minorities for quite a long time. And that's why um, Burmese refugees, also, also known as Myanmar, have made up the, the top country of origin for refugee resettlement in the last decade or so. And about 70% of those folks are Christians of one variety or another. Actually, a lot of Baptists, um, people whose faith goes back to Adoniram Judson, who brought the gospel there, um, some Anglicans, some Catholics as well. Um, and there are other persecuted religious minorities. The Rohingya, who are mostly Muslim, um, are also in that religious minority category, and that's a factor in the persecution that they've fled. Uh, but basically, those individuals are interviewed. They look at uh, our government. I mean, they don't even tell us all these data sources they have, but they have a lot of good information to verify that someone's story checks out. And also, of course, to make towards the security concerns, to make sure that they're not accidentally bringing in anyone who would want to harm the United States in any way. Matt, I'm glad you mentioned September 11th and the effect that that had on actual refugee admissions, because what what we in the advocacy community 
were advocating for uh, with the Biden administration was a rage in the ceiling, raising the cap. But the admissions themselves, as you already talked about, um, there's a lot more that goes into that. But the president gets to set the cap of how many, like what would be the most that we could bring in this year? And so, you know, during 9-11, and I'll, and I'll, I'll link to a graph that, that shows those historical numbers that, that you've already laid out. But in case somebody wants to see it, you can see that during 9-11, the admissions dropped while we were, uh, the actual admissions, even though the cap remained steady, because this is the ideal that we want to reach, uh, the admissions dropped. And, and the, same, the same is going to have to be true as the refugee resettlement pipeline is being rebuilt. Uh, COVID certainly exacerbated the trends that were already happening. Um, but but there's a lot more that's going to go into that as well. And this is where I think, um, actually, I, I want to talk a little bit more about before. So eventually, I want to get to where uh, our listeners can, can get involved in rebuilding the type of pipeline uh, that is going to be needed if we're going to resettle 62,500 people that the White House is going to say we can. Um, but so I'll, I'll, I'll leave that as a tease for the rest of the conversation for folks to keep listening. But but maybe uh, here at this, at this next point in the conversation, walk us through what happened over these last couple of weeks. Um, we as, a, as an advocate, advocacy community were expecting and calling for, I mean, I, I wrote a, a piece at Providence Magazine calling for the refugee re- ceiling to be raised and thinking that, um, you know, that would be a good thing to write early on in the Biden administration because it's something that they promised they would do and it's something we wanted to support and make the case for. And then they didn't. Yeah. What happened? Yeah, I mean, I think we're still piecing together what happened kind of on the inside, but I can tell you what was publicly known to us. Um, so as you said, I mean, during the campaign, I I fully expected to strongly disagree with President Biden on a number of issues, but I thought I would be really pleased with him on refugees because he made a a very robust case going back to World Refugee Day last year and during the campaign um, for a a significant increase to the refugee ceiling and getting to the point of 125,000, which again, isn't historically unprecedented, but is, is higher than it's been in quite a while. And it seemed like for all the right reasons. I mean, President Biden wrote the foreword to a book by a Jesuit priest on sort of the the moral arguments for resettling refugees, which I, I thought this was a personal commitment from everything I could, you know, understand. Obviously, I don't know the president personally. But and then the new administration started, and within a few weeks, there was a an executive order that didn't do all that much, frankly, but it was a nice executive order. It basically said, We're gonna do everything necessary to raise the refugee ceiling and rebuild the refugee program. And then seems like following up on that by early February, there was a uh, a report from the State Department, obviously part of the, the Biden administration, to Congress, which is actually required by the Refugee Act. Not You don't necessarily need the consent of Congress, but you need to consult with Congress um, to set the refugee ceiling. And so it made the case for an emergency uh, change in the refugee ceiling mid-fiscal year, which the president has done in past administrations, changing it to 62,500. And I think the rationale for that number was sort of 125,000 prorated for roughly half of a fiscal year uh, uh, left before the end of the fiscal year on September 30th. But it, I mean, it also has the the benefit of, of pulling ourselves closer to that historical average of 90K. Right. Um, and you look at, at President Obama's and, and President Bush's 70, 80. So, you know, it's moving us back to that direction of what the historical norm should be. Right. And and for us, that was a very encouraging step. And then we were just waiting for the president to sign on the dotted line. And again, as a resettlement agency, that would be our cue 
to start the rebuilding process on our end. Because frankly, we've had to reduce our staff in the U.S. by roughly a third in the last four years as the number of refugees has gone down so dramatically. So we were just waiting for that signature. Uh, you know, it's just the the last formality of what we were clear was going to happen. And then literally for months, the president didn't sign that new refugee ceiling. And it started to have some real impacts. We had more than 700 individuals whose flights had been booked because the State Department clearly thought he was going to sign the ceiling. And this was largely individuals from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, in fact, it affected a, a colleague of mine at World Relief down in Memphis, whose sister-in-law had her flight booked, was super excited to be reunited to her husband there in Memphis. And then because the president didn't sign the refugee ceiling, and the specific issue here was the allocations basically for by region or category that the, the previous administration had put in place, um, they didn't prioritize people from the Democratic Republic of Congo. So there weren't enough slots for that for people in that category. And then just about two weeks ago, President Biden did sign a new refugee ceiling. It fixed that category issue, so the Congolese should be able to come in. But frankly, it, it shocked us because it also reaffirmed and it, the language of the memorandum was it was justified to keep the refugee ceiling at 15,000, which was completely different than what we had been, than what the State Department had said just a few months earlier, than anything we had heard from the White House up to that point. So it really surprised us um, and was very upsetting to us because we strongly believe that the U.S. should be getting back to a historic norm and Within a few hours, because there was so much pushback, and that came from d Democrats in Congress, but it also came from some Republicans in Congress. It certainly came from a lot of different faith groups, including a lot of evangelical groups. Uh, we had this clarification from the White House that there may have been some confusion. And of course, the president was going to raise the refugee ceiling, <laughs> right? which I might have been a little bit punchy on Twitter. But my response to that was actually the language of this executive, you know, this memorandum from the president is not particularly confusing. It says that 15,000 remains a justified number. What's confusing is that a president who ran on raising the ceiling to 125,000 would sign this. Exactly. And, and so, I mean, give us, give us a little bit more about what, what does that pushback look like, right? When we're advocating here in D.C., uh, you know, there, there's, yeah, what does that pushback look like? Yeah, I mean, so it's been kind of a multi-part strategy to how do we convey to President Biden that he really needs to keep his commitment on this issue and that goes, I mean, anywhere we can directly get to the president or to people on his staff, we've been doing that. Um, we've been reaching out to the White House very consistently through different parts of the U.S. government. Uh, even though Congress doesn't have as direct of a role in setting the refugee ceiling as they do on many other elements of immigration policy, we've certainly also been reaching out to congressional offices and, you know, they can, many of them can make a direct call to the president that I can't personally make. So encouraging them to weigh in with the White House. And again, on, on both sides of the aisle, um, uh, there's a lot of strong advocates for the resettlement program. And also, obviously, using media. I mean, you mentioned your piece, Jeff, which was great. We've been trying to get as much into the media, highlighting that this is a really disappointing broken promise that, most importantly, has direct impacts. I mean, the case that I keep talking about, but because I, you know, it's something I've been praying for for a long time, we have a, a, a woman in Spokane, Washington, whom World Relief resettled a couple of years, maybe three years ago. Her name is Aruj. She's a Pakistani Christian. Her husband was basically kidnapped and tortured in Pakistan because he was publishing information about Christians and Christianity on a website in Pakistan. And he was basically picked up by extremists. Arush fled, uh, didn't know that if her husband was still alive, made it to Sri Lanka, eventually was resettled to Spokane, Washington. 
And thank God uh, her husband, Sonny, was alive and eventually released and or escaped and made it out and made it to Sri Lanka as well. But Aruj is now here in the United States and her husband is now in Sri Lanka, which is a better place for him than Pakistan, but still not ideal. I mean, there's been um, persecution of Christians in Sri Lanka as well. Frankly, after the terrorist attack that occurred there in Sri Lanka a couple of years ago, there's been persecution of Pakistanis who are presumed to be Muslim, who are sort of all lumped together by many in, in that society. So he's almost persecuted on on multiple counts. And, you know, if Arush is just desperate to be back with her, have her husband reunited to her here in the U.S., and we've not been able to tell her when that might happen. And except for that with 15,000 slots and, you know, the odds are just a lot less than if there's 62,500 slots. And... That's why, you know, I, I don't know that his flight has been booked with this announcement today, but it certainly makes it much more likely. He's in that pipeline process. He's, you know, from my understanding, completed, you know, the the vetting and security dynamics. So hopefully there will be a slot for him to be able to be reunited to his wife sometime soon. I'm so glad you shared that personal story because I think that helps give so much uh, color to this situation that otherwise is just black and white text on a screen in articles that people are reading. Tell us more about when refugees had to cancel their flights. That's something that we've seen articles of throughout this year because the ceiling wasn't being raised. Now that the ceiling is raised, are those are people able to book flights now? Yeah, so the way it works is people don't book their own flights. Um, it's something the State Department coordinates with the International Organization for Migration. So basically, the State Department needs to sort of give the green light. This person can come on this date. We have... On, our, on the governmental end, done all the processing and you know all the security checks are in place, all the health checks. And then on the other end, we've confirmed with World Relief or the Catholic bishops or whoever the receiving resettlement agency is that they are ready for this family. They'll have an apartment set up. They'll be there at the airport to meet them. And of course, for us at World Relief, we're working on funding volunteers from a church to surround them as well. Um, so that process, again, clearly there was some miscommunication or change of mind within the White House because the State Department went ahead and booked flights from the Congo in particular that wouldn't have been possible without a revision to the refugee ceiling. And as I mentioned, that affected a number of folks that, that we were expecting to receive, I think all from the Democratic Republic of Congo. I don't know if any cases were from other countries, um, but that was the primary situation. Uh, my, my colleague Basuze in, in Memphis is a good example of this. I mean, he, was, he got to break or to share with his brother, who had also already been resettled to Memphis, the good news that his wife's case had finally been approved. And with the super low numbers for the last few years, a lot of people have been waiting a long time for family reunification. So this was a, a, a reason for celebration. They were prepping their house. Uh, and then uh, Basuze had to share with his brother that actually the flight had been canceled. And now we're waiting on um, the State Department. They now have the legal authority. They actually have for a couple of weeks because of that change in category to book a new flight. Actually, but this speaks to the challenge too, uh, that that woman in the Congo, her health clearance expired while all this was happening. So she didn't get sick in the meantime, fortunately, but she's got to go get a doctor to sign off on the fact that she's still healthy enough to travel. So now they're in that. Sometimes security clearances expire. And then, you know, that is a whole other process that can be complicated. So whenever there's canceled flights, it, I mean, we had cases who had been canceled more than once under President Trump and then were canceled again under President Biden. It's... Mm. It's really, you know, it says in Proverbs, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And that's, this is an example of that. Yeah. Just that it's heartbreaking to think you're about to be reunited your family and have that pulled away. Hmm. Well, and, you know, it's, it's one of the, it's the canceled flight 
situation is is very is very discouraging. Um, but again, there's a moment here in equipping Americans to understand just how thorough of a vetting process people go through to be able to seek refuge here in the United States through the Refugee Resettlement Program. Um, it is a it is the most thorough vetting process of any path into the United States. And it's the one most in line with our ideals and with our values, serving as a beacon of hope for the persecuted around the world. So, you know, even, even in that moment of, of canceled flights and, and, you know, the frustrations of having to go get new, uh, check off new boxes because things expired, there's a lesson there. Yeah. This is a very thorough process. It's extremely thorough. And I mean, anyone who's independently verified this, I know the Heritage Foundation did a really great report on refugee resettlement that affirmed this is the most thorough vetting process the U.S. government has for any category of visitor or immigrant coming into the United States. And it's an appropriate process. And, and to be clear, you know, we want as many refugees to come in as possible this year, but we're not ask, not at all asking the administration to cut corners. It, it's important that those steps are in place. We want, I mean, you know, I've met refugees at the airport. I want them to be wonderful, nice people. I don't want them to be the wrong people. Anyone, no one wants that. And I've had refugees living in my house for months at a time. Like, and I'm very confident in the process our government has set up uh, you know, we can always look for efficiencies, but it shouldn't be in any way cutting corners uh, on the security dynamic. That's an appropriate function of our government, which, by the way, they've done really well. I mean, again, the vetting processes have been improved in the last couple of decades, especially after 9-11. But since 1980, when the Refugee Act was signed into law, we've had more than 3 million refugees resettled. And there's not a single case of someone resettled as a refugee taking the life of an American citizen in a terrorist attack. That's actually a great record. And I think a credit to to the officers of the Department of Homeland Security who have really hard jobs and probably say no to plenty of people who are actually good people who should be able to come in. But if there's a half of a hint that you're the wrong person, you don't make the cut. Matt, I want to talk about the welcome that you just uh, that you just uh, mentioned, the welcome that, you know, meeting people at the airport and that kind of thing. You know, as we're kind of wrapping up our conversation, you know, there are we, we've worked with a number of churches who are uh, who are eager to help. I mean, who who see this as an opportunity that the world is coming to us uh, in terms of uh, in terms of opportunities to to love our neighbors, uh, to uh, share the good news of of Jesus. What what uh, what can churches do to get engaged to get engaged and to uh, get involved? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, you know, there are nine refugee resettlement agencies nationally that work with the State Department. World Relief is one of those. Um, actually, most of them are faith-based in some way or another, uh, but we're, I think we're the only one that is, uh, you know, would identify as an evangelical Christian organization. Um, all of those agencies, though, have an interest in volunteers. They all need help. It, you know, it's, a, it's set up as a public-private partnership, so the government provides some funding for those agencies. But frankly, it's never been enough to serve people at a very high level. I mean, we actually need volunteers to be able to do far more than what a, a caseworker can do on their own. Um, and for World Relief in particular, and we're not going to be able to overlap with every Southern Baptist church in the country, unfortunately, but we will overlap with quite a few. Our mission is not just to resettle refugees well or to help immigrants integrate into their community. Our mission is to empower the local church to serve the most vulnerable. And so we've we've failed at our mission if we've done exactly the, you know, sort of the same as a secular refugee resettlement organization and the local churches in our community aren't a part of it. So we want to be what we call a good neighbor team. Uh, it's often a small group that already exists or a team that forms from within a church to come alongside a family from ideally 
from right at the moment they arrive at the airport or even before that, setting up the apartment, making sure there's furniture, things like that. And, you know, there's some practical needs that those volunteers help with. But the biggest thing is actually friendship. Uh, We've heard from refugees over the years, you know, especially those who aren't coming for family reunification, but are coming and are often entirely on their own, you know, with a caseworker from World Relief, which they're usually grateful for. But uh, what they often have said they need is someone who is patient and will work through some cultural um, confusion and awkwardness to help them to learn a new language and to understand the culture that uh, to seems normal to all of us who were raised in it, but can be very strange to people coming in from outside and, you know, help kids adjust to school, help people understand the labor market in the United States. Refugees are usually working within 90 days, sometimes a lot less. Even now, I mean, we are not struggling to put refugees into jobs right now. There are a lot of labor opportunities in the United States. Um, so that's that's our role as an organization, but ultimately we think it's the church's role and we get to put the church on the front of that. We, we don't care if people remembered how much World Relief helped them when they landed in the United States. We want them to remember the local church that's, that came alongside them. And, and to your point, Travis, it's, you know, we do that to love our neighbors as ourselves. Um, many of these folks are already brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it's a chance to stand with the persecuted church. Many others are not believers. And it's an opportunity to make disciples of all nations right in our own communities. And, you know, we don't serve people. Um, we don't we do not do proselytism, which is, you know, like a bait and switch sort of pressure sales. Like you can pray this prayer and then we'll, um, you know, get you help you with a rent check or something like that. We would never do that. Um, but we do believe in evangelism rightly understood, which is an open invitation. And very often that comes, as First Peter says, you know, we are ready to give an answer to everyone who asks for the reason for the hope that's within you. And when it's a team from a local church that welcomes that family at the airport and genuinely loves them as their neighbors, which we're called to do, whether they would ever share our faith or not, it's rare that sooner or later they don't ask that question of why. And we get to point them to, well, it's because we believe in Jesus and this is who we believe Jesus is. And we've seen lots of people make that decision to follow Jesus. Again, with full respect of their religious freedom, we're not pushing this on them, but they are free to make that choice here in a context that's very different than the countries that many of them came from, where they don't have that religious freedom. And frankly, where a missionary sent by an American church doesn't have religious freedom to share their faith either. Right, right. I've seen this work up close, both uh, at churches I've been a part of here in the U.S. um, with different refugee resettlement agencies. I've seen this work overseas and in Germany, working with refugees during the crisis in, in 2015 and 2016. Uh, it is an amazing and beautiful thing for the church of Christ to serve those who are literally fleeing for their lives. Uh, and so we're we're going to look forward to ways to continue to call our United States government to be uh, to set the policies such that our country can can measure up to its ideals here and then call the church. Uh, to to go and and do likewise uh, to measure up to uh, not just American ideals but uh, to the Great Commission, which happens to be showing up in our backyard. Um, so, Matt, in in closing, I'm I'm going to switch gears uh, to move from refugees to again just a, a quick question for you here as we're wrapping up about the crisis on the southern border, uh, because as we've talked about, there's a lot of confusion in the public square conversations around immigration and refugees and asylum and think that it's all that it's all one issue, but it's not. They're separate. We've done a lot of work to separate them out, but there's still work that needs to be done on the, on the southern border. And uh, Senators Cornyn and Sinema 
and Representatives Cuellar and Gonzalez did something quite interesting and quite rare uh, here in the last couple of weeks. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, so just a, a week or two ago, uh, as you said, those two senators and two representatives, which the the innovative dynamic here is they're not all of the same party. And it's... It, it's <laughs> Such an innovative dynamic. Yeah, I, I mean, I think... <laughs> the Democrats and Republicans could come together on something. I, I mean, I think that's, you know, the, the bill itself is, I think, you know, I've talked to my colleagues who think it's a net positive. Uh, you know, there was a few minor things we might like to see changed here or there. But what's really encouraging is, frankly, to see a Republican senator from a border state and a Democratic senator from a border state working together to, to basically to pass, to potentially actually pass legislation. Because the way it works in Washington right now is you can go on cable news and talk about how terrible the other party's ideas are all you want. Uh, but unless there's a change in the makeup of the U.S. Senate, not much is going to happen, especially around immigration policy, which is, um, you know, is, is contentious to begin with and is not a budget issue you solve usually through reconciliation processes. It, it's going to take some bipartisan cooperation to actually solve problems. And so, you know, we were really grateful to Senator Cornyn and Senator Sinema and to their their counterparts in the House of Representatives, again, one Republican, one Democrat, for doing the hard work of sitting down, making some, you know, forging a consensus that they could both get behind. And frankly, we would love to see that be a model for a whole bunch of other immigration issues that could use some bipartisan cooperation, especially in the U.S. Senate. Well, that's exactly right. And I wanted to be sure to to touch on that with you, Matt, since we work together at the, at the EIT uh, on these issues, because I think it's important for, for us to continue proving what we know to be true, which is border security does not have to be in conflict uh, with our history and with our heritage of being a welcoming nation for those fleeing persecution. And just because we would argue that the refugee process is separate from what's happening at the border with the asylum process doesn't mean that we're not involved in uh, calling our government to good policy solutions for both. And um, you help us do that. And we appreciate uh, your leadership on these issues and and working with you all at, at World Relief as you really are on the front lines of resettling people in this in this country and giving the church an opportunity to jump in and, and do just that. So Matt, really appreciate you joining us here on Capital Conversations yeah. for this important. And uh, thankfully, because of the breaking news right before we hit record, uh, somewhat encouraging conversation uh, that the ceiling has been raised. So thanks for coming on, Matt. Yeah, we're, I'm so happy to do it. And we're so grateful for our partnership with the RLC and, and with lots of Southern Baptist congregations around the country as well. This is Capital Conversations and the RLC podcast from Washington, D.C. If you enjoyed today's show, send a link to this podcast to a friend or a family member in your community who you think would also appreciate learning more about what happened with the refugee ceiling and what we as Christians can do to serve those in the persecuted church and other imperiled religious minorities and oppressed peoples looking for a safe haven here in the United States. Be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations wherever you are listening so that you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review. This really does help others find our show. Resources from today's episode are available in the show notes and as always at ERLC.com. Thanks so much for joining us today and we look forward to being back together with you next week.